Hey listeners, it's Lisa Campbell. Welcome to Seize the Day. A couple of years ago, I was invited to participate in a science storytelling workshop hosted by the Story Collider. The Story Collider is a nonprofit organization that, quote, helps people of all walks of life, from scientists to doctors to patients to engineers to teachers to firefighters, tell their true personal stories about science, end quote. The Story Collider works to show the relevance of science to everyday life and to make scientists as people more familiar. The staff run workshops where stories are crafted, and then they host live shows and produce a podcast to share some of them. The story you'll hear today is my story, developed initially at the workshop and shared for the first time. So, with a shout out to my workshop hosts, Aaron Barker and Liz Neely, let me tell you a story. I am in bright red foul weather gear, attached by a harness to one of the safety lines tacked down on the deck and running its length. Technically, I'm on watch. But throughout my four-hour shift, 8 p.m. to midnight, I am huddled on the deck in the stern of the boat, leaning against a bulkhead, my knees pulled up in front of my body, my head and arms draped over my knees. I am rocking, or maybe swaying a little and possibly moaning, more or less in sync with the movement of the boat through what I am told are moderately rough waters. For the inexperienced sailor, like me and many others on the voyage, it is enough. I am useless, overwhelmed with a nausea that is so specific to seasickness. Earlier throughout the day, I watched my fellow crew members struggle as one by one they fell ill, One person didn't even make it out of the harbor before they threw up over the side and then retired below to their bunk. Another lay prone on the deck, staring into the distance for five hours. While I was sympathetic with my fellow voyagers, I was also somewhat smug about my superior stomach and my strategic approach. Anticipating possible problems, I'd loaded up on anti-motion sickness meds before boarding, and I stayed in the stern of the boat for most of the day. It's a small thing to feel smug about. I know. But then at dinner time, everything changed. One of the few remaining crew members able to eat was sitting across from me on the deck telling a story when she vomited mid-sentence into her dinner bowl. Mid-sentence. Talking? Vomit. It was that quick. And that was it. I felt my own stomach turn. I crawled to the side of the deck, discreetly I hoped, and threw up. While still able to function, I rinsed the deck with a hose before collapsing into my so-called watch position. This was the end of my first day on a three-day research cruise to the Sargasso Sea in the offshore waters of the island of Bermuda. As a social scientist, I was working on a project that sought to understand the diverse values that people attach to these distant, offshore, ocean spaces, ones they seldom visit. My conclusion at the end of day one? Humans have no business here. The ocean is hostile. Keep out. The morning of day two dawned overcast but relatively calm. Most of us were more or less recovered, and we exchanged sheepish looks as we started our day. I sat clutching a mug of hot, milky tea and watched the sky slowly brighten. With calmer seas, the ocean seemed less hostile, but still just so incredibly vast. 
I felt physically small and insignificant in a way I had never felt before. All around us the sea looked the same. No land, no other boats, nothing to distinguish one view from another for the inexperienced sailor, except maybe the sky, I guess, if you knew how to read it. I had learned that the harness that tethered me to the boat was because if I were washed overboard, I would be lost from sight within minutes, lost in the swell of the ocean, long before the sailboat could turn and return to retrieve me. I was tethered to the boat not to avoid drowning, but to avoid disappearing. You can disappear. I wasn't frightened, not really, but the feeling of smallness, of my insignificance in the midst of the vast Atlantic Ocean, did help me understand in some new and visceral way the enormity of the task of trying to manage and conserve the ocean on a global scale. In places like this, the Sargasso Sea feature in these efforts. Now I'm a social scientist, and I study global oceans conservation and related politics. My research normally takes place at international meetings or in the offices of conservation organizations, not on research cruises. My data come from people and documents, not from the waters of the Atlantic Ocean. So how did I come to be drinking tea at dawn, reflecting on my insignificance during a research cruise in the Sargasso Sea? Well, at the time, my then-student and now-colleague Leslie Acton was conducting research on Bermuda's efforts to protect the Sargasso Sea. Early on during her stay in Bermuda, she met Dr. Robbie Smith from the Bermuda Aquarium, Museum, and Zoo. A natural mentor of graduate students, Dr. Smith, well, I'll call him Robbie, everybody does, Robbie went out of his way to support Leslie, making introductions, sharing documents, and, you guessed it, inviting her on a research cruise to the Sargasso Sea. He thought that she should see firsthand the environment at the heart of the conservation effort she was studying. As luck would have it, the cruise was scheduled during the two weeks I was in Bermuda to support Leslie's work, so Robbie made a place for me as well. Robbie runs these short expeditions in Bermuda's offshore waters opportunistically on the Sea Dragon, a 72-foot sailing vessel that serves Pangaea Exploration, a nonprofit organization committed to exploration, education, and conservation. When the Sea Dragon is available and Robbie can raise the funds, he and his students use these trips to collect samples for various ongoing research projects. But Robbie also takes the opportunity to show members of the public, high school teachers, environmental educators, politicians, students, and even visiting researchers, an ecosystem he cares passionately about, the Sargasso Sea. So the journey is both a scientific expedition and a science education expedition. The Sargasso Sea is named for the vast patch of free-floating sargassum seaweed that circulates in the North and Mid-Atlantic, bordered by four ocean currents that contain it in a gyre. While there are other types of floating seaweed, sargassum is interesting because it's the only type that reproduces at the surface while floating. It also provides habitat to various species, including some fish and invertebrates endemic to it. They don't exist anywhere else. This second day is a work day and daytime hours are devoted to sampling sargassum. We go to work armed with the sophisticated tools of many field biologists. Think pool skimmers and kids' dip nets, kitchen colanders and sieves, and buckets. Lots and lots of white five-gallon buckets. The Sargasso Sea has been described as a golden floating rainforest. But sargassum has a seasonality and moves with winds and currents. 
The transects we followed at that time of year and in those conditions was populated with small dispersed clumps of sargassum, rather than the vast mat I had imagined. This makes our collection efforts both challenging and humorous. To collect sargassum, we hang out over the side of the sailboat, leaning into our harnesses, trusting them to keep us in the boat and to stop us from disappearing. We wield dip nets, trying to time our dips perfectly to catch the small clumps of sargassum as they move past the boat. With the boat shifting and dipping in the waves, it's more challenging than you would think, and we laugh as some of the clumps evade all of our collectors, lined up along the length of the boat. Eventually, though, our buckets are full of sargassum, and we watch Robbie and a student pick through it, recording information on species, their number, and size. They patiently answer our questions about what they're looking for and finding as they do their work. Valuing the Sargasso Sea scientifically is one of the many competing value propositions at stake in the conflicts over whether or not Bermuda should protect the space. Scientific arguments are weighed alongside economic arguments, sovereignty concerns, and cultural claims. How does science fare in such contests? When do scientific arguments prevail and when do they fall flat? Who mobilizes scientific authority and to what effect? These kinds of broad questions about science and scientific practice drive my own research on global oceans conservation and shape all of my engagements with science. So even though I am here to participate in Robbie's research, I can't help but think about my own. I am interested both in the details of the science we're doing, what is in the bucket, but also our approach to the activity. So what does our science look like? When we reach our first transect, the captain announces that it's time to do science. Let's do some science. And Robbie responds with his own call of, who wants to do science? Many of the volunteer crew engage with enthusiasm, and there is a giddy procession of people to get sampling gear. Aren't you excited? Don't you want to do science? I find it both fun, let's do science, but also unsettling, like doing science is a goal in and of itself. Sociologists of science tell us that the inaccessibility of science combined with its projected authority can explain some of the public's distrust of science and scientists, distrust that is part of what has been called the current post-truth era. The approach we take to doing science certainly makes it accessible. You too can do science, but it also seems to celebrate it, science, without reflecting on the questions we're seeking to answer or why we would even ask them in the first place. But we do science all of us pitching in, all of us enjoying ourselves. I recognize the power of that, of participating, of having fun, and maybe it's enough. When we arrive back on shore the next day, we are all tired and need to bathe, but we linger on the dock, hesitant to say goodbye. A collective crew vomit can bind people together after all, both in place when it happens and in the story that each of us tells and retells over time to other people. While I am still mulling over the role of science in the trip, at that moment, as we find our shore legs together, I am overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude for having had this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to experience the Sargasso Sea, and to do so with these people. I say goodbye knowing that I am unlikely to cross paths with most of them again, but also that I won't forget them. I also know that I am unlikely to do anything similar in the future. It's only due to the coincidence of timing, combined with Robbie's thoughtfulness, that this trip has happened at all. As I leave the dock, I'm already filing this in my memory. Lisa's research crews in the Sargasso Sea, 
as a standalone event, one with a clear beginning and ending. But beginnings and endings often blur. Six months later, back at home in North Carolina, I received an email from a colleague, Sarah. In her message, she described how at age 37, she had been diagnosed with stage two hormone receptor positive breast cancer. The email took my breath away. 37 is young, and Sarah is a runner, a non-smoker, the picture of health. I was shocked that this thing, stage two hormone receptor positive breast cancer, had happened to her. But the message continued. Sarah, about to turn 40, was celebrating two years cancer-free, and to mark the occasion, she had signed up for Expedition, a series of all-women sailing expeditions to scientifically investigate causes and solutions to plastic pollution in the oceans. The organization's tagline is to make the unseen seen by connecting the toxics in our bodies to the plastics in our seas. Scientific research increasingly suggests that many plastics leach chemicals that mimic female hormones, impairing normal function in the body and likely leading to cancers of hormone-sensitive tissues like the breast and ovary. So, yes, Sarah's response to her illness and recovery was to do science. And guess what boat would host this expedition? It was the Sea Dragon. Sarah would sail on Expedition Caribbean Leg 2, sampling and testing water for contaminants on that same boat. I pictured the Sea Dragon. I imagined her crew. And for reasons I don't fully understand, this gave me great comfort. As I typed a response to Sarah's message, I couldn't help myself. I thought, okay, Sarah, let's do science. Thanks for listening to Seize the Day. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Lisa Campbell. Alpha Lobo edited it. For more information, visit our website at sites.nicholas.duke.edu slash seize the day. You'll learn more about Leslie Acton's research, the Sargasso Sea, expeditions on the Sea Dragon, Sarah's story, and the Story Collider. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at seize the day pod and leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts.